So good to be with you. This is a time of year when poor receptions really stand out. Uh, think of football. The receiver for your team just drops a pass when he was wide open. That is a poor reception. Maybe even more painful is poor reception with your television. For example, suppose that your team is playing the evil-hated, vaunted Alabama in the whatever bowl, and, uh, and suppose your team actually has the lead, and they are driving for what could be the touchdown to seal the victory, and you're so excited, and you're screaming, and you're yelling, and everybody in the whole house is cheering, when suddenly at the critical moment, your signal goes out. That is poor reception indeed, is it not? Awful, awful. Maybe you've experienced poor reception uh, personally, like at a Christmas party or something. Uh, not true at your Christmas party, but suppose you're at a Christmas party and, uh, and you tell that joke that had everybody in your Bible study dying laughing, right? And you tell the joke and there's just crickets, right? They all just stare at you. I mean, they just give you a funny look and then they, and every, everyone, like at one, they all kind of sniff and, and turn away, right? Poor receptions hurt. All those are examples of a poor reception. Sadly, that is what most people are like regarding Jesus. The Christ of Christmas gets a pretty poor reception, and sometimes this happens even among those people who trust him. Look at your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in, right? Open up your worship guide. Look on the left-hand side of your notes. I want to introduce you to a special Greek word for receiving, paralambano, paralambano. Paralambano, this, was, this is important. This will help us be transformed. It, it was a word that was a favorite term of Aristotle's. He used it about 400 years before Jesus was born. Aristotle used paralambano to describe the relationship between a student and, and his instructor. I don't know if you know this, but a, but a Greek philosopher was very much like a Jewish rabbi. Uh, he was a personal leader and had all command, uh, complete life command over those who were, who were following him, who were studying with him. Uh, the wise student, says Aristotle, is the one who receives the teacher's authority and the teacher's instruction. And this, listen, this is more than intellectual, okay? According to Aristotle, paralambano is, is receiving reception into the very core of one's person, okay? Paralambano or lambano is used in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, used in all four Gospels to, to represent choosing something or, or taking something. But get this, John and Mark... And this Christmas, we're looking at some special terms used by John and Mark. John and Mark particularly employ paralambano to signify receiving in the Aristotelian sense of, of accepting the teacher and his teaching into the core of one's life. Now, folks, I am no Greek scholar. I just know how to read. And I know how to read the great tools we have that can help us grasp God's word. And what I read shows that John and Mark use paralambano in the old Aristotle-type way. They do it on purpose. And doing so, they introduce us to a term that I really think can transform us. I think this can change our lives. So let's say the old-fashioned word together. On the count of three, paralambano. One, two, three, paralambano. Very good. Okay, first appearance of paralambano we're going to look at is in Mark chapter 7. Open your Bible. Mark chapter 7. Turn to the Gospel of Mark Second book of your New Testament, right after Matthew, just before Luke, Mark chapter 7, and let's read the first four verses. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, the him is Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Now, a long parenthetical comment here. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. 
when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they've received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. All right, stop there. The sad truth is that instead of receiving the teacher, traditionalism often rules lives. As we put it in our notes, people receive rules instead of the ruler. Mark appears to be writing for an audience of people who, like him, are Roman citizens. Mark is a Roman citizen. And Mark's gospel is written to explain what it means for all people of all times and places that Jesus is Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. And this is why Mark spends a lot of time on false rules and how they interfere with the true ruler. And here he educates his audience about how the Jews receive. It's our Greek word, paralambano. They receive and keep all kinds of special rules and regulations that have nothing to do with Scripture. And doing so, they miss the true ruler, Jesus. Aristotle said reception is about accepting the truth and the authority of a teacher into the core of one's life. Sadly, these people are doing just the opposite. They're rejecting the true king, and they're instead receiving a bunch of petty rules. Notice, notice Jesus' followers don't receive the customs. Do you see that? The implication, I really like how Mark wrote this. The implication is they are too full of the teacher to have room for all the traditionalism. Isn't that nice? They're too full, of the, too full of the ruler to have room for the rules. But we see this sad scenario continue all over the world every day. Just think about Christmas. Think about Christmas around the world. When I lived in Europe, and this is still true for many of my friends there, in European families, going to church on Christmas Eve is tantamount to being holy. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. And sadly, the, the issue is not about one's heart as one goes to worship. The issue is not even about the one that is being worshipped. The only, only thing that matters is we have to get there on time to get a seat. That's all that matters. That's the whole thing. In the Marshall Islands, where my cousins used to live for a number of years, the big deal at Christmas is dance. Did you notice about the Marshall Islands? It's kind of fun. Everybody gets into these groups called juptas, and in the jupta, uh, they practice untold hours, months and months. They practice song and dance routines and develop, and then on Christmas Day, communities get together, and they have a big judging dance-off. It's fun, but, and I can testify from my cousins, it has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. He has no place in those dances. In parts of the Middle East, you know what Christmas Day is for? And kids in the Middle East, especially Lebanon and parts of Jordan, they love Christmas Day for one reason, one reason only. Because on Christmas Day, and this cuts across all ethical and, I mean, all racial and religious lines, children can walk up to any adult on Christmas Day and they can say, you have a present for me. And the adult is expected to give them something. It's a great day to stay inside if you're an adult. <laughs> in Iceland... In Iceland, you know, people rarely even call it Christmas anymore there. It's rarely even called Christmas. It's, people get excited about Yola Boca Flood. Uh, Yola Boca Flood is, is Yuletide book flood. It's the Christmas book flood. Um, in, in Iceland, what people do, and this has become increasingly popular, is they don't celebrate Christmas, but on Christmas Eve, they give each other lots of books. People exchange books. They give gifts of books, and then they stay up all night reading and drinking chocolate. It sounds like heaven to me, uh, frankly. It sounds awesome, but it has nothing to do with Jesus as the ruler. And many Icelanders that I hear from are burdened with the cost of all the books they're expected to buy. As you can imagine, uh, Iceland publishes more books per capita than any other country in the world by a fairly large margin, and the vast majority of those books are purchased in December. 
Now, it's not that any of those traditions are evil any more than choosing to wash often is evil. But when the traditions trump the teacher, something's wrong. When the rules matter more than the ruler, we got a problem. I think this is why the earliest depictions of Santa Claus always show a stern disciplinarian holding a switch. Did you, did you know that? Early, not not St. Nicholas, not the, the real person, but, but Santa Claus, the earliest depictions of him in, in any art that we have always show him holding a switch so he can discipline children, right? Not to get the children in line. Why? It, it makes sense. Think, because anytime we take our eyes off of Jesus onto anything else, even a Santa Claus, it, it inevitably leads to a tyranny of rules. Thank goodness we're not like that. I mean, we're exactly like Jesus' disciples in this. We never act like the Pharisees. We never trade the ruler for rules. Or do we? What are our own traditionalisms that can easily begin to take our value away from Jesus, get our eyes off of him? Not you, of course, but other people, other people in the world have these traditions that easily become more important for them than receiving Jesus. What are some of those? What about trees? Trees are great. Christmas tree. Evergreen can be a wonderful way to remember the, the unconditional, eternal love of God shown in Jesus Christ. can be lovely. But what if I'm more focused on the tree than on the Savior who died on a tree to save my very soul? Then my tradition has become a traditionalism. Toys. Toys are awesome! I love toys, but are they really the most important thing to receive at Christmas? Say no. No, they're not. Okay. Same thing can be said for parties and presents and every other Christmas tradition. If that tradition is not centered on receiving the free grace of Jesus, then it is merely traditionalism. Now, the gospel story gets even more tragic. Turn over to John. Go to John's gospel, John chapter 1. We'll be in John the rest of our time. Let's go to John 1 and read verses 10 and 11, uh, verses we heard part of just a bit ago. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not only did they prefer to receive rules, but the people actually refused to receive the Messiah. That's the title on the right side of our notes. Look at the right side of our notes. The people refused to receive Messiah. I want to introduce you to Mike Chiofiletti. Mike Chiofiletti is a United States Airman. Uh, a few years ago, he surprised his family at Christmas this way. Here's Mike. His best friend, uh, Sam, is behind him. Sam is the only one who knows about this. He's filming Mike as he goes to the ancestral home for a Christmas surprise. I love this coolest kid he follows. You don't even know. This is Mike's wife. That's his mom. His mom's precious, but she has a problem taking her in the That's his aunt. There's another aunt. Love the dog. Love the dog. Mike's dad is outside. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! 
that's an important question. Always be a that's awesome. Now, suppose this. I know it's absurd, but I just want you to suppose Airman Chiafaletti was not accepted. Can, 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 you, can you imagine the pain of that, the ridiculousness of that? His own people, what, what if they had just said, no, we, we are not ready for you. No, it is, no, it's not time. That's sick. But that is exactly what happened to Jesus when he appeared in Israel. John the baptizer was the best friend. John the baptizer is the best friend. He knew. He knew. He's behind filming the whole thing, right? He's telling us, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's setting everything up. But only a very few people screamed, oh, my God, which in Jesus' case would actually have been appropriate. <laughs> Instead, they rejected it. In John's haunting poetry, look at it. His own people did not receive him. Now, again, we all wag our heads and we think, oh, my goodness, thank, thank gracious, we're not like that. But we are. Far too often. We, those who are made part of God's family through faith in Jesus, we don't actively receive him at Christmas. Christians, family members who should know better, poorly receive the Lord of Christmas. That's part of the horror over in the Gospel of Luke. Look, look Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 7. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. In the first century, travelers always stayed with family. Okay, it, it, it was too expensive. There were caravanseries, what we would, we would call motels, but they were expensive. And, and sometimes they weren't all that safe, especially if it wasn't a busy time. They could be somewhat unsafe, um, unless you were with a big caravan. That's why they were called caravanseries. People didn't stay there. You stayed with family. And you know what we know? We know that both Joseph and Mary's lines, both of their family trees run through Bethlehem. Right? They both run through Bethlehem. So when we're reading Luke chapter 2, we're reading along and we expect to say, despite, despite her unmarried condition, we know some family's going to take them in. And we're reading and then they stayed with family. What? You see, the shock is not the lack of room at the caravansary during a census. That's not the shock. The shock is not even that they had to stay downstairs with the animals because the upstairs part where all the people stayed was full. The big shock in the story is that they go to a lodging place at all. They should be with their people, but none, none will have them. And we do the same thing. We do. I, I at least do. I know a number of times I have forgotten to do the Advent wreath. Our family Advent wreath is one of the main tools our family uses to focus us on Jesus during a busy season. I have forgotten to do it. I have never forgotten to open my toys. I love the Christmas song Jingle Bells with Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters. I know it's old. It was old before I was born. It doesn't matter. It's an awesome song. And it is natural for me to make sure I hear that song. It's not really Christmas till I hear that every December. And that's great. But I don't naturally take time to sit still and listen to O Little Town of Bethlehem, which has really got a lot of theological brilliance in it. Philip Bliss, a pastor, uh, his third verse is particularly germane to what we're talking about. Look, where meek souls will receive him. St uh, um, stand up. That's it. Uh, we got to sing this. Put your stuff down. Come on. Let's go. It's time to do a Christmas carol. Come on, boys and girls. Let's sing together. <clears throat> you ready? How silently, how silently, 
wondrous gift is given. Oh, you're good. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his hand. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. That was awesome. Give yourselves a hand. That was really good. All right, be seated. That's enough. All right. Now, I think it's possible that Pastor Bliss may have been looking at Paralambano. Look at this. Impart to human hearts. You see that? Paralambano. In the, in the Aristotle, since we Mark and John use it, meek souls will receive power lambano. The point is not that Bing or Buble or Andy Williams are bad. It's that I miss the chance to receive Jesus again at Christmas. That is, I lose the opportunity to be meek. I lose the opportunity to be still so that I can power lambano. I can receive Jesus as the reason for the season. But, of course... All you great theologians are thinking in your uh, Bing Crosby imitation, you're saying, but, 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 but Christian, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I already received Jesus when I trusted him, right? Bubba, right? I already received Jesus, and that is true. Yes, if you're a believer in Christ, you are justified, you have already received Jesus, but that's not the end of the story. We can and must still power Lombano. We need to build on our justification by taking all of the teacher and his teaching to heart. And that brings up another question. I'm sure we're all thinking in our Bing Crosby voices. We're saying, so can you, um, can you tell me some specific ways to recognize Jesus in our celebration? Great question. Thank you for asking. I've thought about this a bit. I'd like to share three things that I have found helpful to me. Number one, explain the reason for each activity. To yourself, that's where it matters, and if necessary to others, when appropriate, but explain the reason for the activity. Are you giving someone a gift? Be honest with yourself. Think. What's the purpose of this? Is this just a pharisaical tradition? Is a cultural thing? They gave me something, so I have to give them something? Or is this really a gift that I am giving because I am so full of gratitude for how Jesus has given and keeps giving to me all the time unilaterally, unconditionally blessing me, and so I want to bless someone else. Which is it? Think. Do this for every activity, every party, every gift, every carol. Know the reason. Secondly, pray until the right reason is your reason. Sometimes that takes a lot of prayer. So suppose I'm, I'm eight years old, and my only reason for being excited about the Christmas Eve service at church is that I get sugar, I get sugar, I get candy canes. At the end, I know there'll be candy, right? That's what I'm excited about. Is that bad? No. No, I'm much older than eight, and I'm excited about candy canes all the time. It's very healthy, good. But it's not, it's not the main reason, is it? And it won't last. What will last is if I take my little eight-year-old heart, and I pray, and I, maybe I pray with my mom and dad, I talk to my Lord, and I thank God for the Christmas Eve service because that last candle is going to be lit. And that means that Jesus really did come for me, and he really is the Savior of my soul, and he really is coming back. And that really is the most exciting thing in the world. And I can rejoice about that reason. And then I can get high on sugar and candy canes after. That's fine, right? Make sure the right reason is your reason. Third way to receive Jesus into our active Christian life, stop the noise. 
take half an hour and turn off all media. I know, shocking idea. Turn off all media. Just read, if you would, just read John 1 or, or Mark 7. And then meditate on that scripture until you are ready to receive the awesome authority of Jesus. If you get a lunch break at work, use it to stop and read scripture and receive Jesus' teaching. Receive it. It's not about what you can give God. It's about what God longs to give you. In, in fact, John chapter 5, uh, turn over there. John chapter 5 shows that God provides a unilateral offer. It's a one-way deal. Flip over to John 5, and we're just going to read one verse, verse 41. I'll explain the context in just a moment. John 5, 41. Jesus says, I do not accept glory from men. Now, the context here is Jesus establishing his bona fides as fully God. Um, in fact, John relates in this chapter that they began to plot Jesus' death after this because he claimed to be God the Son, co-equal with God the Father. And, and there's a little bigger context that's necessary as well. Uh, look up here at the slide, if you would. Way, way back with Abraham, God made an eternal covenant, beautiful covenant. Mm. It's not like the Mosaic covenant that comes later. This is an unconditional covenant. This is a unilateral covenant of grace that is experienced through faith. Unlike Moses' law, this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, has no limit to it. There's no, there's no fulfillment point where, it's, where it has a terminus where it is supposed to stop. The, the very way this covenant was established showed this. Um, Abram, Abram is ready, when, we, when we're at the point of Abram's covenant in Genesis, he is ready to make a classic uh, Near Eastern suzerainty treaty. Okay, Keaton, come up here, please. Would, uh, Gavin, come up here, please. Sorry. Oh, is your brother in here? Yeah, stand over there, would you? Okay. Or here, you stand here. You stand here. I'll go over there. All right. Now, what happens is in an ancient Near Eastern suzerainty treaty, each person would put on their most glorious clothes, okay? And then they would prepare. Sometimes it's done together. Sometimes it's just done by one. If it was just done by one, it was always done by the, the less powerful member of the treaty. Um, so in that case, this would be me. Um, would, would sacrifice these animals. Would cut these animals in half and, and lay them and let the blood pool in a path, Okay. And then the two principles in the treaty would meet each other, they would acknowledge each other, acknowledge, thank you very much, and they would walk toward each other, going through the blood, and they would then meet in the middle, and they probably wouldn't shake hands, they probably would have done something like, yeah, so they'd be written, yeah. So they would have met like this, and then what they're saying is, I pledge, say I pledge, I pledge. that if I break this treaty, break this treaty that will be done to me. Say it. That would be done to me. Yeah, very good, okay. <laughs> So, so what they're saying is they're walking through the blood. This is a blood treaty. That's, we, we have a number of examples of these from Acadia, other places. And so that's what Abram's doing back in the book of Genesis. But does anybody remember the curveball that God throws at him? This is astonishing. Anybody remember what happened? Fourth grade Sunday school, remember what happened? Only God went through. Okay, so, so you're Abram, okay? And instead of Abram, get back, get back, get back, get back. Instead of walking through the blood... God makes him fall down. Here you go, sleep, there you go, good. But look at me, look at me. Okay, and God appears with Abram sleeping, Abram looking at him as he's kind of in this groggy state, and God alone walks through the blood, right? And then says, rise. Right, very good. Can you, can you give uh, Gavin a hand, please? Yes, thank you. Give, give Ryland a hand there, Grayson. Sorry, I thought I'd call you by all your siblings' names. Yeah. What, what's happening here? It is a unilateral covenant that is dependent only on Yahweh. 
He had Abram lie still and trust the one whose glory passed through the blood. It is the glory of God. Abram saw the bright, shining glory of God passing through the blood. Abram brought no glory to this treaty. Only God did. Okay, with that context in mind, Jesus is fully God and the Abrahamic covenant. Now go back to John chapter 5. Look at verse 41. I do not accept glory from men, says Jesus. He doesn't receive anything from humans. By the way, the word receive is a form of power lumbano. Jesus doesn't take human glory into his soul and learn from us. He is the rabbi. He offers us an unconditional, unilateral covenant, a new covenant extension of the one he made with Abraham. Humans have no, we have no glory to walk through the blood. It seems, I know this seems really strange to human ears because we expect to earn everything by our own effort. But Jesus doesn't want or need our glory. We, we bring nothing to the table. He only calls us to trust. That's the key to the Abrahamic covenant. Abram believed God, and his glory comes through his blood, through his sacrifice to dwell in us. It's a one-way ticket. When I was a kid, trading baseball cards was a big deal. When I was a really little kid, cards were going through kind of a revival when I was a little boy, and trading was a major part of life along the creek behind my house. Now, the idea was for trades to be even. You couldn't rip some kid off by giving an uneven trade, you know, picking on some littler kid, or else the, the, the jury of, of the guys along the creek would, would declare that unfair and beat you up. Um, or much, much worse, you would go home and your mom would say, wait a minute, how'd you get this card? And if it wasn't even, she would call their mom and then you were toast, right? So, for example, when I was six years old, Glenn Kortemeyer came over and he said, hey, I've got a, I've got a Nolan Ryan card. And that was a big deal, right? He was playing for the California Angels. And, and I was like, well, I got a Johnny Bench. And, 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 and the guys in the creek decided this was a fair trade. And, and, and the reason was Johnny Bench now, he's bigger than Nolan Ryan because I'm from Oklahoma where Johnny Bench is from. And basically at that time period, Johnny Bench was kind of minor deity to all boys in Oklahoma. But the Nolan Ryan card was 3D. <laughs> so that was an even trade. We, we had a little discussion. We decided it was an even trade. All right. <clears throat> well, one day my buddy Jimmy Roughface came over. Uh, Jimmy was a Sac Fox Indian. He was the best home run hitter since Jim Thorpe, another Sac Fox Indian. Uh, I, I'm chalked up. By the way, the kids I grew up around were horribly racist. I don't know about the ones you grew up around, but they were. Yeah. Anyway, Jimmy and I were friends, even though we were different tribes. And uh, and Jimmy was a great, great kid. I'm I'm not kidding. He could cru- six years old. He could crush the baseball. And he came over one day and made me very, very sad by saying, "Hey, I'm uh, I'm moving. My family's moving." Where to? He said, someplace called Arizona. I said, what's Arizona? He says, I don't know. It's a desert. I was like, oh, that's awful. Anyway, Jim said, I've got a parting gift for you, and I wanted to share something with you. And, and he, he pulled out and gave me these, one of the great gifts I've ever gotten in my life. These are the incredibly rare Fleer uh, Trading Card Company World Series cards. And they've got on the, anybody know these? Anybody ever seen these, the World Series cards? Okay, some of you have. On, on, the, on the front side, it's got a really cool representation of every uh, World Series cute little cartoon. And on the back, it's got a summary of what happened in that World Series. And, and I, I said, Jim, I can't, I don't have anything to give you. He said, no, that's okay. My mom came in. You know, moms can smell something weird's going on. She comes walking in. She's like, oh, no, Jimmy, we can't do this. So she picks up the phone. She calls Jimmy's mom, and his mom says, no, it's okay. It's okay. He, he wanted to do this. We think it's all right. And, and I was struggling with it, and Jimmy just looked at me, and he said, Wayne, I don't want anything. I just want you to remember me. 
And my mom agreed. And I accepted them. And as you know, Jim, I have never forgotten you. In a similar way, what Jesus offers us is beyond our scope to recompense. We have nothing to give back. He doesn't accept glory from humans. He just calls for us to remember him. John 14 expands on the image. Last place we're going to turn, turn to John 14. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of John 14. Our last power lambano. <clears throat> Jesus' great upper room discourse, talking to his followers, and he says this. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus receives those who trust him. Now, he's using here an image from Israeli village life. Um, if you don't know the image, when, a, when an Israeli man in the first century became betrothed to a woman, they were considered legally married. However, they didn't consummate the marriage until a day came when the groom's father, and it was the groom's father's choice alone, the groom's father decided that everything was ready. Now, usually that readiness involved getting a home prepared for the bride. The vast majority of young men in the first century could not afford their own property. Land was very expensive in Israel under the Roman occupation. So what they would do is they would take the typical four-room Israeli house and they would add a room onto it. And sometimes this happened over generation after generation. Now that room that was added on, and it might be subdivided into a couple of different rooms, that room was added on was considered the separate home of the new couple. It really was their place, but it was still in the Father's house. Isn't this cool? Do you see it? So look at what Jesus is saying. He's going to prepare a place in his Father's house for everyone who believes in him. And when all of that heavenly work is finished, when it's all prepared, the Father will send him back to receive, paralambano, believers to himself. It's our term that transforms. Look, paralambano, and it is used in Aristotle's way. Jesus, the teacher, he takes us into his very heart and soul. He will bond with us. And, and other scriptures go on to detail how those who receive Jesus, they don't just get received by Jesus, there's a big reception for them in heaven. It's called the, it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. And the Bible describes it in amazing technicolor. I, um, I recently was at an incredible wedding reception. It had phenomenal food, it had great drink, massive crowd, dressed to the nines, the prettiest flowers I have ever seen in my life. There were pyrotechnics, balloons, orchestra, DJ, you name it, it was at this reception. It was awesome, but none of that stuff is what made the event. The event was made by the groom and the bride. Their belief in the Lord and, and each other bonded them, and without that bond, there's no reception, there's no celebration. In the same way, Jesus is ready to have a glorious reception, better than anything on earth, but only for those who bond with him in trust. We must believe on him first. Pray with me, please, as we respond to that unilateral offer. Pray with me. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me today that has never trusted Jesus as Savior. Friend, listen. Jesus is, just as John 5 claims, he is fully God, the Son. 
and he alone walks through the blood. You can't. I can't either. No one can. We have no glory to give. But he imputes glory to us by walking through the blood of his sacrifice. You see, Jesus died on the tree that really matters, on that Roman tree, that cross. And he died to pay the price for your sins and mine because a blood price had to be paid. And he did it so that everyone who believes on him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Because, folks, he rose from the dead. He is not in that tomb. He is alive. He ascended into heaven, and he is coming back again, which is what we celebrate at Advent. And this candle of reception reminds me of the amazing truth that he receives into his own life, into his core, those who believe on him. If you have never believed Jesus as Savior, do so right now. Trust him as your Savior and your God. If you just trusted Jesus, raise your hand. Everybody else is praying. Raise your hand. Let you and I rejoice together. Good for you. Amen. Father, I pray for all these who are believers in Jesus. And there are so many. Thank you that we get to worship with so many brothers and sisters. But I pray for them and I pray for me because we... While we may be justified, wonderfully justified by believing on Jesus, we really struggle sometimes with receiving our Lord, with responding to his teaching, with being, with being joyfully yielded to your spirit. And I pray you change that. Use power lombano, use receive as a way for me and for my, for my friends to receive you every day. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.